Uh, Today we are going to be in uh, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. If you uh, do not have a Bible, uh, you are welcome to grab one of these light blue Bibles. They're over by the give box as well. Um, That is our gift to you, so please feel free to take that home. Um, Or you can always use a a Bible app on your phone. Uh, Again, uh, it's going to be Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the middle of a five-part series on formation. So spiritual formation is the theme of 2024 for us. And so in a couple weeks, we'll get back into Matthew's gospel as we head through Lent and up into Good Friday and Easter. So spiritual formation, what spiritual formation? Hopefully by now some of you could answer this question live. Uh, But in short, it's the process of becoming a person of love in relationship to God and people. Becoming a person of love in relationship to God and people. And one way to think about this question and the importance of it is, so say you, if you grew up in the church, and maybe even if you haven't, you've heard a question to the effect of, what if you were to die tomorrow? Right, so if you died tomorrow, would you know that you're going to be with God in heaven when you die? And important question. Okay, Jesus talks about final judgment more than any other biblical author. He is concerned about this question. However, equally, Jesus is concerned not about the que- with not just the question, what if you die tomorrow, but what if you live tomorrow? In a lot of ways, that's an even more challenging question. So what if you live tomorrow? Well, what kind of person are you becoming formed into? So the people who share your roof, the people who work with you, your friends, what type of person are they going to encounter tomorrow? Is someone who's distracted, angry? checked out, generally focused on themselves, or someone who is just immersed in the love of God, and out of that, they live in other-centered love. Okay, so what if if you live tomorrow? And so with this topic of spiritual formation, and everybody's being formed in one direction or another, we're looking at practices which help us open us up to the experience of God, and having Him through the Spirit form us into people of love. And today, we're looking at a practice that perhaps more than any other practice— powerfully forms us into people of love and helps us experience God, and that is prayer. Okay, prayer in, by itself, often we need a lot of other things, but of all the practices, it, it may be the most powerful. So the, the last two weeks, we looked at Sabbath keeping, and so I, I, hope, I hope you guys um, are beginning to practice Sabbath, right, in, in your own way and are enjoying that. And so what we're doing in these final two weeks of this formation series is giving you some other practices you can do during the other six or seven days of the week, since Sabbath is just one day a week. Okay, and, and our community groups will keep focusing on Sabbath for the next few months. Okay, but so today we're gonna, we're gonna talk about prayer. And as we, as we look at prayer, um, first, I think it's just helpful, especially in a church setting, to acknowledge that prayer can be really frustrating. Uh, so it, with the exception of probably five to ten percent of people in here, okay, prayer is frustrating. It can feel boring, really hard, uh, unproductive, maybe. If you were to get inside my head when I'm praying, I'm, it'd probably look something like a golden retriever in a room with his favorite people and toys. It's like, 
I go to pray and, oh my goodness, I need to send that email. Or, Why are my books arranged like that? I need to do something about that right now. Or, oh, I just read an article about streaming services increasing their price. I wonder what cable cost in the 90s. Th- this isn't a scenario I'm making up to try to my, make myself sound more related. This was this morning, okay, as I'm trying to spend time in the quiet with God before coming here. Because we just like breathe and exhale and acknowledge that God knows it's frustrating, Okay, your, your, your pastor often finds himself very distracted in prayer. Okay, so we, we have room. We need to admit this. Um, but number two, what we're going to look at today as we think about formation is we're going to look at an aspect of prayer that often doesn't get very much attention. Okay, there are, there are a number of reasons why we pray and why God teaches us to pray. But uh, one of the most important, what we'll see today, is how prayer changes you. Okay, so not just how you get God to, to do things when you pray, but how prayer shapes you. And here's how the author, Tyler Staten, puts it. He says, Sometimes God will move heaven and earth in response to our humble mumblings. But more often, his preferred method seems to be to reform the heart of the praying person and then send them out an answer to their own prayers. Right? So important. Okay, God, I, I pray that you'll comfort this person in their loneliness. Okay, well, maybe you are the means by which God is going to answer that prayer, so you need to grow in love and then be a presence to that person, right? So we're going to look at how God forms us and changes us uh, through prayer, just like he forms us through Sabbath. We'll look at how does he shape us in prayer. And so uh, in this passage, Jesus teaching on the Lord's Prayer, uh, we'll see three things about how prayer shapes us. And so we'll look at it this way. Uh, prayer shapes us into a person of power, intimacy, love. Okay, power, intimacy, love. Okay, so verse number one, prayer shapes us into people of or a person of power. Chapter 11, verse one, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So before we even get to Jesus' teaching on prayer, we already see a powerful lesson when it comes to prayer. So you'll notice when you read through the Gospels, it's quickly evident that Jesus is always praying. Okay, so there are these scenes where his friends are like, where'd Jesus go? I can't find him. And then one of them was like, oh, I found him. He's, he's praying again. Okay, so he, he's praying all the time. And here his disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is noteworthy because nowhere else, at least that we have recorded in the Gospels, do his disciples ask him to teach them something. And yet Jesus is always doing all kinds of cool stuff. Right, so calming storms, uh, healing paralyzed people, rhetorically outmaneuvering his verbal opponents without ever despising them, quickly forgiving them, staying extremely steady under pressure, resuscitating dead people, pretty helpful. Okay, and yet his, you never see his disciples ask him to teach them any of that. Instead, they say, Lord, there's just one thing we want you to teach us. It's teach us to pray. And this is because the disciples perceive that all the incredible stuff that Jesus does is an outworking of his life with the Father. And they know this in part because he tells them so. And so they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so here what we see is, at least for me, this was eye-opening. I, I hope it is for you or a good reminder if you, if you learned it a while ago, is often we tend to think of prayer, maybe like, a, maybe say you're on a really long hike, multiple days, and your knee starts hurting. For those of you in your 20s, trust me, it will happen. Okay, your knee starts hurting, and you pop a Tylenol, some ibuprofen, and it feels better. Okay, we think prayers like that. Okay, suddenly I have a need. I'm, 
I'm anxious. I have a hard decision I need to make. Uh, somebody I love is suffering. I'm going to pray. And then it doesn't look like anything happens. And so we say, you know, well, it's, it's not working. Now, now, to be clear, pray like that. Like the prayers where you just say, God, help. Okay, once something happens, God loves those prayers. However, what we see in the life of Jesus and what we see, I mean, all throughout Scripture is prayer often seems to be not the, the flare that you just send up once things start happening, but it's more like, so if you're preparing, going back to the hike, if you're preparing for a long hike, it's more like all the training you should be doing before the hike, so you're finally ready once it happens, okay, and your knee is less likely to hurt. So as you daily commune with God, who is love and is wisdom and loves to give these things to you, you become the kind of person who generally is less anxious over time. He generally is more wise and discerning and hard decisions over time. Generally can be a better presence toward, toward those who are, are suffering. You see, so prayer gives you power in this kind of way. And psychologists talk about the phrase negative ruminations and, or negative rumination. It's the human draw, I don't know why we do this, but it's the human draw toward unpleasant thoughts like moths are drawn to a light bulb. So when we lie down to sleep or when we wake or when we're driving in our car, we just drift into unpleasant thoughts at fear being the most common. So fear of, uh, fear, fear of the future, that conversation I really don't want to have, but I know I need to have. Who's going to get elected this year? Am I going to have enough money? Will I be alone for the rest of my life? Will I be able to have a child? And that overly complicated trip to the car mechanic that I keep putting off and is long overdue. Okay, so we worry and we fear about the future or regret and worry over the past. So, man, I had that conversation yesterday, and I think I made a comment that was, that was maybe off-putting, and I, now I'm sure that person hates me. Right? Or just general regret that you somehow keep failing the people that you profess to love the most. And so in this state of being, it's fear and anxiety and regret that are the soundtrack of our lives just as we're doing stuff, especially in silence. Hope is the occasional interruption. And what we see modeled in the life of Jesus is prayer, regularly communion with God, right? As we begin to enjoy his presence and, and wisdom in very tangible ways, now, as we lie down and wake and are driving, his presence begins to crowd out those negative ruminations. And so now it's hope and gratitude and confidence that are the soundtrack of our lives. And fear is the occasional interruption. Okay, this happens very slowly, but certainly over time. And I think about in my own life. So early on, um, when I had like just entered ministry, I had to have a conversation with a member who needed some gentle correction, you could say. And so I, you know, I'm in the car, negative ruminate, like fear of how this conversation is going to go. And so we're sitting on a bench and we're talking. And before I can get to the part that I was worried about and, and scared to have, they look at me and they say, you know, our church doesn't have a great culture of prayer. And I think that starts with you. And I was like, <laughs> You know, <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm here to correct you. <laughs> you aren't here to correct me. And so I, I drive home. We don't even get to the part that I wanted to talk with them about. And I'm sulking and my pride is bruised. And by the mercy of God, when I gave myself some time to settle, I realized 
they're right. They're right. And because at the time, most of my prayers were just, it was a brief formality before I head out the door. And, you know, I pray a lot in public. I'd pray a lot in groups, which Jesus says is very dangerous when you're only praying in public and not in private. And as a result, a lot of my pastoring and my life with family was driven by fear. What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? And this person actually was the catalyst to just spark a more unhurried, regular prayer life. And too slowly for me to see over time, but obvious enough to see in hindsight— uh, later, I found myself, I was at lunch with a friend, and they were just asking me, they're an annoying but good friend like this, and they were just asking me, how, you know, how would you say you've changed the most in the last year? And it, it didn't hit me until they asked. I said, you know, before I think I always led by fear, like that was the common ground note, and now I'm, I'm naturally a cynical person. I'm a lot more hopeful now than I used to be. I'm a little less driven by ego, a little bit more driven by love, okay, a little less anxious, a, a little bit more steady. Because prayer gives you this kind of power, and not the power of a Marvel superhero, but no less incredible, okay, to become a person of, of peace and steadfastness, like Jesus was in his ministry. So that's, that's number one, okay, through just daily communion with God, it, it, it gives us power, okay? Now, number two, what, how does prayer also form us? And it makes us into people of intimacy, and we see this in the first word of the prayer, of the framework that Jesus models, he says, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. When you pray, say, Father. Let's stop there. So Jesus is saying the most important thing when it comes to prayer is you need to establish the framework of a parent-child relationship. And the more you think about this, and I understand for a lot of you this can be really hard. Okay, but if you think about this in the context of how a, a, parent rela- a parent-child relationship should be, okay, and why we know some parent-child relationships are so distorted because we have God as the standard of how it should be. Okay, that's how we know it's bad when it happens. But Jesus says the most important thing you need is to establish the parent-child relationship. And the more you think about it, the more outside the box it is comp- compared to how we normally pray. So you don't need to have children to understand prayer. Hannah and Esther and Jesus and Paul didn't, and they certainly seem to have prayer figured out. But as just for me personally, as... I've had children. I've developed a more robust appreciation for prayer when Jesus says, pray like this, Father. Because, so my children are all young, and I continue to be amazed at how little silence there is when they're awake. Okay, zero. Zero silence. Unless they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Okay, they, they tell me about everything. They ask me about everything. We're in the grocery store. What's that? It's a hot pepper. What's that? Celery. Why? There is no why. Why is there no why? Son, I got a B minus in college philosophy. I'm not going to be very helpful with first principles. <laughs> okay. They, they ask me for anything. 5 a.m. They come crashing in my room. Tickles. I'm like, hmm, guys, two rules in life to be a decent human being. One, always obey your mom. Number two, never awaken a sleeping man. Okay. Or this was, this was just last week. So the other week, the, the Khan family, they're not here. Hopefully they'll hear this on the recording because I'm coming for you. But the Khan family was in, in with my kids in kids ministry. And, you know, we had a bunch of snow. And so they te- they're like, oh, do you guys know what snow angels are? No, we don't. So they tell them what snow angels are. And they say, hey, if you need help when you're out in the snow, just ask your parents to demonstrate. And so sure enough, we're out in the snow last week. I do not want to get anything near wet. And hey, daddy, can you make us a snow angel? Thank you, Khan family. Okay. 
They ask you about anything, and they do this without any pretense or materialism because they assume that their parents like them and want to be with them and generally want to give them good things. And they do this shamelessly. And I think ultimately, in their own way, they ask these things and they say all these things because they want more of their parent. Okay, they want more intimacy with their parent. And God's saying, what if you actually lived like your father in heaven is not this aloof or cruel or unconcerned father figure or deity in the sky who doesn't care about you, but he, he loves you and likes you and generally always wants to do good things for you. And he doesn't care if you run into his room at 5 a.m. asking for tickles. And he'll make as many snowmen as you want because his goodness has no end. Intimacy is the aim of prayer. It's what children want with their parents, and it's what God wants with us. And when we see that intimacy is a primary aim of prayer, this is unusual because when you look at other religions, prayer is mainly about results. So for the Muslim, it's about staying in God's favor. For the Buddhist, it's about obtaining enlightenment. For the Christian, it's about relationship and closeness. And closeness. And this has profound implications because if the Yes, pray to ask, to pray to get things. Give us our, give us this day our daily bread. But if the main reason and the motive for praying is just gimme, 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 what happens when God doesn't give you the thing you think you need in the way and the timing in which you think you need it? We generally know how that goes. Okay, bitterness or distance from God or a third thing or a combination of all three. But what happens if when the main motive of our relationship and our, and our communication with God, which is constant communication, is intimacy. Well, then, over time, through intimacy, trust is developed, and that changes everything. So just recently, uh, Kelsey and I have been doing a, a deeper, more intentional dive on our relationship and, and our marriage and just talking with one another about our, our character toward one another and toward other people. And Kelsey was just like, hey, yeah, there, there's this area of your life where uh, you're not very relationally generous. And it was an area that I was blind to. And now if she had told me that when we were dating, I, I probably wouldn't have received it very well. Okay, even if I knew she was right, I probably would have deflected that through. Oh, we were just trying to put me down or like get an edge over me. Or maybe you have your own issues and you're just trying not to look at it. But because we, we have 14 years of relational mileage, now when she tells me something like that, I know she loves me. Her motives aren't mixed as much as she can help it when she tells me something like that. And so I can, I can trust her when she tells me something that's hard or maybe when she, she does something, whereas 14 years ago I may have perceived it in a more negative light. So with God, when you are in ongoing communion with him over time, what happens through intimacy is trust is formed. And what this means is when the rejection comes, when the tumor still grows, when you have to say goodbye long before you wanted to say goodbye. You go to God, and you're used to talking with him all the time, and now you talk with him about this. And yes, there is the cry of, why God? But deeper than that cry and the frustration and the anger, which you should bring to him, is a settled trust whereby which you know he's with me, he likes me. Okay, in the end, he's always for my joy. And, and yes, my story will probably have as much beauty and heartache as Jesus's did. 
but also like Jesus, he's going to raise me to a new kind of life where he personally patches up all of my hurt and where in the end all I have left is joy. So we learned to, to talk with just all the time like a child. Tell him everything. Ask him anything. We develop trust, which then therefore gives us the steadiness which we, which we need for the inevitable glories and sufferings of life. So prayer forms us into a person of power, of, of intimacy, where now God isn't just an abstraction, but he's actually realer than our, even our closest human relationships. Number three, prayer forms us into a person of love. And here we look at the prayer. Note a thread that runs throughout this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. So hallowed be your name. That's another way of saying you are at the center of the universe, not me. Your kingdom come. That's another way of saying God help me. God's, God's kingdom, when it comes, that's anytime God's character and will is done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus teaches elsewhere. So when you say your kingdom come, you're saying, Lord, help me be your presence of love and forgiveness and gentleness and hard work toward the people around me. Give us each day our daily bread. Okay, Lord, I am not fully autonomous, like I like to think. I'm dependent, which fosters gratitude and humility. Forgive us our sins or forgive me my sins. Okay, Lord, help me to stop expecting other people to be Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the only person who's not going to fail me. And yet, I'm having a really hard time forgiving this individual for not being Jesus. Okay, so help me, help me to remember that first, you need to forgive me for not being Jesus to other people. I have as much self-centeredness to be forgiven of. And then because I'm forgiven, I can now forgive everyone else who's indebted to me. And lead us not into temptation. Here we, we name our honest temptations to God. Lord, I am prone to envy here. I am prone to controlling or trying to manipulate other people here. I'm prone to lust here. I'm prone to arrogance here. And as you name these things, now God can deal with the real you, which is always the only person he can actually engage with and love. And so as we pray these things over time, they always form us into people of love. And so, I mean, consider... Uh, living with someone, working with someone, having somebody in your family who, at the start of their day, okay, just they're regularly praying, Lord, remind me I'm not the center of the universe. Help me be a presence of love to the people around me. Lord, I am grateful for you. Lord, I need to be forgiven for my self-centeredness. Lord, Jesus is the only one who can be Jesus. Help me to forgive other people. God, here are the areas about me that hurt myself and other people, so please protect me and others from the worst parts about myself. Someone who's praying like that, honestly and expectantly, like compare that, a relationship with that person, to someone who when they wake, they read political news for an hour and then scroll through TikTok and X. Like generally speaking, and everybody will have different starting points, but generally speaking, who's going to become more of a person of love over time? And I have a pretty good idea. Okay, and so also we pray because God forms us into people who can actually love other people like Jesus does. Power, intimacy, love. 
not long after Jesus gave this teaching, he found himself alone in a garden. The garden's name is Gethsemane. And this was the this was the final moment Jesus had to run from the authorities that were coming after him and to crucify him if he wanted to do it. And he's by himself, and Luke describes his state of being in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't know how it feels to have this kind of stress that it makes God sweat drops of blood, but it's got to be pretty intense. And we're told what his, what his prayer is, is, Father, remove this cup from me, please. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And a big reason why Jesus was able to pray that kind of prayer in a situation like this is because through his whole life, as he had been praying with God, it prepared him to pass a test of this magnitude. And it gave him an intimacy with God the Father that he knew God would be with him through the betrayal and literally the the heart-rending suffering that was about to happen. And he was a person of love. In many ways, this was the hardest decision here in Gethsemane because this is where he resolved to move forward. It was the hardest decision he ever made and in another sense, it was the easiest. Just because love is who he is. And he does this not just to model for you like what prayer can do, but he does it as your substitute. So as you see him there, praying so beautifully. He does it to cover every season of your unbelief, of your doubt, of praying not as you should, and then out of that not loving others as you should, so that when you go to pray, it's not about getting it right or doing it enough. It's about going to your Father to access the power and the intimacy and the love that's already there. This is the the surety we have in the gospel. And so as we think about applying this, right, becoming people of prayer, uh, just two applications I want to invite you into. Uh, One is, and we'll talk a little bit more about prayer next week, more emphasizing the solitude nature of it and the silent nature of it. But for today, uh, one is we we have a prayer team that meets at uh, 9.30, and I would love for a couple months, a couple years from now, for somebody to look at the prayer culture of our church and not say it looks thin. And I also need to do my part, right, to, to play. Already I've seen our, our prayer team grow. It's been so encouraging to see it. We just, we had a member recently, uh, he read one of our uh, books that we have on prayer out the front, and then he said, he says, you know, like, I just read a book on prayer, but I realize if I need to grow, if I want to grow, I actually need to do it. And he joined the, the prayer team that meets here on Sunday mornings. It was just such an encouragement to me. And so 9.30 every Sunday, like more than, more than great preaching, shepherding, worship, community, all that stuff really matters, but it's all for not if we don't have prayer in this church. And then number two, I, I want to invite you guys into the, 
into the childlike, just constant nature of prayer. Like one of the greatest shifts in my prayer life over the past year is when I get in the car or I go on a walk, often it happens when I'm walking or when I'm making stuff in the kitchen. You know, usually I just, I go to music or a podcast. I'll just take a, a sometimes it's a few minutes, sometimes it turns into 45. And I just take a few minutes just to start stream of consciousness with God. Here are the things I'm afraid of. Here are the things I want. Here are, uh, here's what I'm happy about. God, will you do this? God, like, the, like the equivalent of like tickles, you know, snow angel, or just I, I want to know you. Uh, you feel really distant from me. And I, I encourage you to just be aware of those moments where you, you know, you're about to, and then you're just, you're, you rush to fill the silence and just take a little bit of time and begin talking with God as if he is actually there and actually really likes you and loves to draw near to you. And as you do, I, I, I can't promise many things. I guarantee you over time, you'll become a person of more power, intimacy, and love. Let's pray.